Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this week's edition of Christian Conspiracy Theory. We are your host, Matthew and Aaron Miller. This week, we're going to talk about how it was that the Nephilim persisted after the flood. We're going to take a look at this very seriously and... This is going to be a pretty big broadcast, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to talk about where these Nephilim descended upon, where it was they went, who it was they were, and how it was they came to their demise. And all of this is really inferred in the New Testament, not the Old. We've got lots of ground to cover, but take note, ladies and gentlemen, that tonight we're also going to be talking about extra-biblical texts that are not Scripture. Tonight we're going to have to go to some Arabic work, uh, most notably the Quran. But like I said, it is not Scripture, nor is it God-breathed. So with that in mind, um, Aaron... Jump on here and give us your opening diatribe about what you've heard or what you've read as to the possible reasons uh, that Nephilim could possibly still be persisting after the flood when they had biblically been wiped out. So what's your thoughts? Well, this has never been very approached in any rabbinic text I've ever looked at, any exegetical works um, on the Bible. But most rabbis believe that uh, Og somehow survived on the Ark, or he was, somehow he survived. That was was the famous uh, belief among them, that somehow uh, they helped Noah built the ark and were able to be carried on that. But this is highly doubtful because the Bible says that every living creature was wiped out by the flood, does it not? That's just not kosher, is it? No. Something's wrong with that. Well, well, yeah. Um, there's another. There's another possibility. Um, that could lead us in an entirely different direction, but we can go with the second idea, a second incursion. Um, we know the first incursion was um, brought about by Azazel, um, one of the angels who sent, who brought down the sons of God, 
i.e. the angels, to uh, take mortal women as their wives and um, father the Nephilim, which were giant monsters, basically, and they became demons when they died. They, their spirits became demons. Um, so that's what we do know. Um, uh, as for the Book of Enoch, it adds Semyaza. He is one of the he and Azazel were the ones who brought the this first incursion. That's basically the grounds of what we know about the first incursion. But the second incursion is barely ever touched on. Like I said, I never I've never come across any rabbinic texts that have ever mentioned it. And as you said, uh, this is referred referred uh, to directly in the New Testament rather than the Old. And so um, here we open up Second Peter chapter two, verses four to six. God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to Tartarus, and delivered them into, into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, and condemned them in, with an overflow, making an, an sample unto those who would live on who should live ungodly. Um, and the next passage is in Jude chapter 1. Well, there's only one chapter in Jude. And it's verses 6 to 7. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness until the, great, the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So in both of these passages, um, we are related to the fall of the angels. But it doesn't refer to just one instance, does it? No, it does not. And it clearly clearly gives the demise as being Sodom and Gomorrah, that valley. So at least we're told where they met their demise. So if you couldn't find anything in the rabbinical text, if you couldn't find anything in the commentaries, you went outside of those resources. Tell us what you found there. Okay. So, um... We have to go back to Genesis chapter 19, where it talks about the condemning of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, that is where Lot, Abraham's cousin, was living in Sodom and Gomorrah at that time. And um, the Bible says that the cry from the evils that were being done in Sodom and Gomorrah rose up to heaven, and God sent his two angels two of his angels, to go um, destroy these two cities. And uh, we know that they did so by raining fire and brimstone down upon those cities. And um, so, but they came and saved Lot. Because Lot and his family, um, because Lot was the only one who remained good in that city. And, well, 
he was basically a foreigner. He came and lived there, um, and he had he had no idea what he was going into there. He he just thought it was going to be a beautiful it was a beautiful land. That's what he looked at from it on the outside, and um, there was something much more dark and evil going on in there. And we know what happened. The angels, these two angels who came to um, Lot. He took them into his house, and the men and all the people from the entire city of Sodom came basically to uh, rape these angels. Now, we find that also in the New Testament text in the reference to the angels that must have been there not protecting themselves. Now, what's even more important is... The $144,000 question, why did two angels go fetch Lot? Why were two angels doing this? This is what's startling, Aaron. We both know how they protected themselves. It says that they made it so that all the people of the town, and it literally says the entire town showed up to rape them. But they made it so they could not find the door and wearied themselves, some translations say, trying to find that door. So this is key critical that actually the New Testament passages gives us a whole lot more information than anybody really gives it credit. Whenever they talk about uh, the incursions, they always talk about the Old Testament, Genesis 6, Genesis 6, Genesis 6, Genesis 6. They never mention Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, with this in mind, Aaron, I think there is a very good reason why God sent two angels into that valley. And let's take note. They wiped out the whole valley, except one place that they let Lot escape to. So, with that in mind, I find it rather curious that what you found outside of the Scripture is really quite stunning when, well, it doesn't mimic the book of Enoch, as you have translated it, and you very well know. Aaron, there's a whole lot of angels involved in that first incursion, but in the extra-biblical text, you find something very shocking. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? Okay, so we know from Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, these angels, the angels of the first incursion, the sons of God, came and took wives of whomever they chose. But from this instance from what those two passages in the New Testament I gave, says that they did something else. That's right. They they found a catch-22, Aaron. Literally, the people showed up, and they must... What made them mad is that these angels wasn't letting them take their spermata in the Greek. These angels, whoever did this second incursion... They had found a catch-22. They weren't taking wives. They were just not protecting themselves, as stated in the New Testament, 
and allowing themselves to be raped. That's the only conclusion you can come to. Yes, and um, what you're referring to is in the epistle of Jude, uh, verse 6, chapter 1, verse 6. It says, they did not keep their first estate in uh, most translations. But in closer inspection of this, it says they did not protect or guard their own power or their authority. We know that those angels at um, at Sodom who came to save Lot in Genesis chapter 19, they protected themselves. They blinded those men so that they couldn't find the door. And as you can see, the entire town came to molest them. And that's given in uh, verse five, 4 to 5. It wasn't just the men, as everybody thinks, as everybody says. It says people from all quarters, and they came to do this. And as you can see, these angels who would have descended here, unlike the ones who saved Lot, they did not protect themselves. They came here for a reason and they thought perhaps they theorized that they would be able to get out of the punishment of the first incursion wherein they took wives this time they would be allowing themselves to be given over to these women and that didn't go over too well either um and uh then the question comes down, when did this happen? When did this dissension happen? Well, we, well, we, you can look at any Mesopotamian uh, myth, like, that they wrote on tablets or whatever, all their epics or whatever. They are extremely sensual. Um, they're, they're basically so obscene, I, 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 feel wrong just reading them sometimes. Um, and the, those people there in Mesopotamia, that is Sumer and uh, Canaan, or something tomorrow were, those people were very sensual. And they... Um, and I think this, these, this is why these angels came there, because these people were so corrupt that they didn't have to do anything. Okay. So, their first dissension, though, that points us to the Tower of Babel. What do we know of the Tower of Babel? Well, to the point, we know that this is where everyone was scattered. We know for a fact that, literally, these people knew uh, that they could accomplish anything. That's what God said. Now, with that in mind, that lends more credence to what you just said. They went into... Now, look, the text is very, very pointed in telling you it wasn't Sodom and Gomorrah. It was this valley. It was the valley. That's exactly what someone would have done if they found themselves going from the entire world, literally having a party at the Tower of Babel to suddenly being cast into a small group, they would look for a securable place to go. 
Yes, and either around a lake or a valley or a, a river valley, um, a set of mountains. Um, and when you think about it, that's exactly what happened there, and that's exactly what happened. So it makes sense that why it goes so far to tell you that the entire valley got nuked, except that one place that the angels protected Lot. So please continue. Okay, so let's slow down a little, people. Um, Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 to 9, uh, tell us of uh, what the Tower of Babel was. It says that the people of the earth came into the land of Shinar, which is Sumer, as we know it. it um, and um, here, they said that they would build a tower that would reach into heaven, quote-unquote, the top of which would reach into heaven. And um, what's interesting to find is that the name of that place is Babylon. Babylon as we know it. Babylon in Akkadian, that is Babylon, means gate of the gods. However, as uh, Genesis chapter 11 verses 1 to 9 shows, that there was a mockery of this word given, Babel, in, our, in the Hebrew language, which means confusion, because God confused those languages. So, um, God kind of turned the name around on them. But if you go into the original languages, originally it was Babylon, but this mockery, mockery Babel, um, shows that there was, um, shows the confusion God did. And that confusion was, is that the people who were building this, this tower that would reach into heaven, quote-unquote, their languages were confused, so that they had to disperse all over the world. That's why we have um, different languages of different peoples. This is why all the different um, countries were made. Um, and as we can see, uh, they built their towers up to heaven. They, they tried to build this tower into heaven. And it's interesting to find that the giants were said to have built towers that reached into heaven. As Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 28, and chapter 9, verses 1, they say that they, they their towers basically reached into heaven. They were so high. But um, for whatever reason, they were trying to get into heaven, these people. And if you read if you read any text other basically any text other than in the Bible that I've I've looked at, they all point to that the giants instigated this tower, and um, this is found in the Sibylline Oracles, the Titans and Kronos, um, Kronos we know from Greek mythology, and um, that brings us to um, Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. That there we know of Halel, son of the dawn, or morning star, son of the dawn. That's where people, most people get Lucifer. Let's take a breather right there. Okay. So, I believe there are three individuals being spoken about here in this passage. Um, 
because that's nothing new with God, especially in the in the prophetic texts. And um, these three individuals um, was number one Nebuchadnezzar, the um, person, the king of Babylon who was living at the time. Number two, Halel, who is Azazel, um, who fell from heaven, um, aspiring to be like God, and brought down this first incursion. And then the third one, son of the dawn. That word is son of Shahar, or Shahar in Hebrew. And that word Shahar isn't just in the Bible. This entity, Shachar, is in other Mesopotamian texts where they are called sons of God. Literally. Uh, sons of El. In uh, their in their myth called the Gracious and Most Beautiful Gods, it says it call it says that they are sons of El, which um, El is God. And in this text, don't be very careful. El is not God. El, in their belief, was some other God. Okay? But this title, Sons of El, points us to their, their the concept of being, um, well, angels, son of El, son of, sons of God. And the, these two, that were the sons of God, were Shachar and Shalim. This is two. And we can see in um, a parallel to the first incursion. As, as I just pointed out, in Enoch, there were given two leaders of the first incursion, Azazel and Semyaza. Um, so, reflecting this, this second incursion also had two. And um, this is also mentioned in the, the Quran, um, the Surah 2, Verse 102, it says, The evil ones teaching men magic and such things as came down at Babylon, or Babel, to the angels Harut and Marut. So, they, the, these angels Harut and Marut came down at, at, at the Tower of Babel and started teaching sorcery. This sorcery also matches um, Semyazan and Azazel and um, Enoch, they taught sorcery. And um, as we can see, there's these two incursions uh, reflecting each other. And um, as we can see, there is another duo. And um, by this foreign, this pagan text, it points out one Shachar and one Shalim. And, um, as I just mentioned, Shachar is mentioned in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. That, that king of Babylon, that king of Babel, whoever instigated the Tower of Babel, that was, um, evidently a giant, his father was this Shachar. And it's, it's baffling to find that it's also mentioned that word shahar is also mentioned in Genesis chapter 19 as the downfall of Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's open that up. That is uh, Genesis chapter 19, verse 15. And it says, 
And when morning dawned, that is, when Shachar ascended, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. So, this, well, literally, this literally said, when Shachar ascended, this happened. Well, I hate to run on your party, Aaron, but Salim is in the Hebrew text, too. Oh, yeah. And that, um, of course, we in Hebrew, that's Salem. That's the... Um, that is what Jerusalem is named after now. It was the city of Melchizedek. And it was named, evidently, after this entity. And it's also... This entity is also mentioned in correlation to Babylon in Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 56. And, this is, and the destroyer is coming against her, against Babylon, and her mighty men will be captured. Their bows are shattered, for the Lord is of recompense and will fully repay. Um, that word fully repay is... Shalim, or Salem. Um, and right here, as you can see, he's mentioned right next to Babylon. Um, well, you you realize that, let's, let's go back, okay? You stopped reading uh, from that text a little bit early. Well, let me finish a little bit more for you. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll re-read one of the stanzas. As came down at Babylon to the angels Harut and Marut. But neither of these taught anyone such things without saying, We are only for trial, so do not blaspheme. They learned from them the means to sow discord between man and wife. But they could not thus harm anyone except by God's permission. Now, you keep going and... Aaron, you don't find it alarming that this is how they got away with it? He's literally coming right out. This text is literally coming right out and telling you. Now, the first thing they tell the people is, look, we're going to teach you stuff, but do not blaspheme. They were trying to conceal what they were doing from God. They were literally, just like I said before, they had found a catch-22. The next stanza, they learn from them the means to sow discord between man and wife. Now, that's a pretty interesting way to put it. But then it goes on to mention something very strange. And what they learned from them, not what profited them, and they knew that the buyers of magic would have no share in the happiness of the hereafter. And vile was the price for which they did sell their souls, if they but knew. Aaron, he just, well, whoever wrote this text made it very pointed that they were, the people had figured out that they could profit from this. Now, this is extremely enlightening text. 
this is startling because now you've put two and two together. I mean, let's 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 bring this thing to bear. Now we know why there was two angels that went down in that valley. They were encoded in the scripture the whole time. And obviously, uh, now we have a hint and a clue as to even why there was the infamous king of Salem. Well, that was a priest to the Lord. He must have actually uh, listened to them. Uh, we are only here for trial or training, more properly put. So do not blaspheme. So Melchizedek must have understood completely what was going on. This could go nowhere good, and he became a priest of the God. So this entire verse, I guess you call it, I'm not familiar with this text, nor do I care to be. I'm not sure, well, it's obviously not a verse, this is obviously a stanza, this must be stanza 102. It is shocking, if you have biblical eyes that can see, and be able to relay it to the other things in the actual scripture... This becomes very startling. And you turn around and look for clues. And the verses that you find with the encodation of these two names, and please repeat the two names again for the listener. Shalim and Shahar. This is absolutely off the charts when you know where to look. So, literally speaking, why don't you give us a short summary of what you believe actually happened, starting from when they come down all the way to their demise. And once you're done with that, maybe we'll take another read of those New Testament verses and see if that lines up with your theory or not. Okay. So, um, this is my theory. Um, they descended out of this Tower of Babel, um, for whatever reason. Uh, right at this moment, I'm not sure why this would have happened in correlation of people trying to reach into heaven. But, let me step back there. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 14. Um... So, this is in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13. And you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my, uh, my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the re recesses of the north. That word north is Tzaphon, or Tzaphon in Hebrew. Um, Tzaphon is uh, a mountain in uh, in Turkey. And... Uh, it now it, it now is known as Jebel Arka, and um, it's interesting to find that in Greek myth, this is where one and the monster Typhon went and battled Zeus and um, trapped him, imprisoned him, and if so, that also correlates 
with um, the uh, the Theogony, where it talks about Kronos, who um, rebelled against his father, Uranus, which means heaven, and uh, became king in his place. And um, in this way, these uh, this son of Shahar reviled his angelic power, his uh, uh, origin, his angelic origin, and wanted to go up into heaven and basically become even higher than the stars of God or the angels. Um, and um, this is found even further with the Baal cycle. Um, can you uh, relay the story of the Baal cycle? Are you familiar with what I'm t speaking of? I am aware of it, but I think you're you're more up to speed to do it, and this is a good place for me to interject here something. Ladies and gentlemen, take a real consideration of this verse, and I'll read it one more time. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13. For thou hast said in thy heart, I will ascend it to heaven, inferring that someone had come down. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Was that throne intended to be the Tower of Babel. Next, we find out where his demonic council is. I will also take note in saying this, he's saying it's at a separate location. I will set also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. Literally, when you put all these pieces together in the Greek mythology creates a perfect picture just in a way that you and I have never considered it before. When he come down, he intended to make his throne the Tower of Babel. And his demonic council, or perhaps we should say undivine council, was going to be stationed at this mountain in the north. And that correlates directly with what I just pointed out in Genesis chapter 19, verse um, 15. It said, And Shachar ascended. Then the angels uh, rose up Lot and his family, telling them they needed to get out of there. And um, so, um, and just so you know, people, that word ascend is this same word in uh, Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13, I will ascend Allah. Or, yes, Allah. <laughs> and um, that's just... Disturbing. Okay, let's get to this. Describe, for, give us a reason why God targeted that valley. I got a suspicion it's got something to do with, well, as you stated before, the bell cycle. And it amazes me how everyone in academia don't put two and two together that, yes, the Lord had the high holy days. And you're a little bit short-sighted if you don't realize that everybody else had their high holy days too. So Aaron, describe for us the bell cycle.
Okay, so this is the Bale cycle. Yom, uh, the god of the sea, the false god of the sea, wants to rule over the other gods and be the most powerful of all. Baal opposes Yom and slays him. Baal, with the help of uh, his sister uh, Anap and uh, Asherah, persuades El to allow him a palace. Baal commissions Kothar wa Kassis to build him a palace. King of the gods and ruler of the world seeks to subjugate Mot, death, the god of death. Um, and then Mot kills Baal. Anath brutally kills Mot, grinds him and scatters his ashes. Baal returns to Mount Saphon, the mountain of the north. Mot, having recovered from being ground up and scattered, challenges Baal Hadad. Baal Hadad, well, Baal, refuses. Mot submits. Baal rules again. So it's just a constant cycle, um, they say, that brings the um, the seasons because of this um, constant cycle of uh, um, Baal being killed by uh, Mot, death, and then brought back to life. And, by, and yeah, it's a cycle. And it has to do with Mount Saphon, where Baal sets his throne. Well, I think you're a little short-sighted indeed if you don't understand that Baal fell. They built him a palace, i.e. the Tower of Babel. Aaron, I heard everything in your short little theory right there in that epic that, well... I read that epic when I was 13 or 14. So, don't you realize that this feast would have been preformed somewhere, and obviously from the text you just read, it would have been a, a, a location other than where the palace was being built. Correct? Yes. So, don't you realize that now we have a hint as to what they were doing in that valley? It would seem to me they were celebrating the very feast you just spoke of. Now we have a clue as to why God was able to catch all of these Second incursion Nephilim in the Valley of Sodom and Gomorrah. So here's a good question. Did um, the Tower of Babel happen in the time, in this time, this time of the overthrowing of Sodom? I don't believe so. I think what happened was, is that um, this, this confusion occurred and these angels were, uh, suffered a setback. So they came to Sodom and they found it very fertile to them, to their scheme. And I'll, and I'll tell you why. Now, you said that Annette stamped 
out Mott, right? And pounded him to dust, correct? Yes. They probably said that she had done so in this valley, and that's why it was so fertile. Now, you weren't using the word fertile in that context, but now you begin to understand why they would have chose the valley of Sodom and Gomorrah. Please continue. Well, um, what I mean by fertile is, is that these people were already ready to carry out this this scheme for them, and they didn't have to plan it out. These people already have the nature to rape. <laughs> Basically, any people who came into the city. Genesis chapter 19 says that once Lot saw these angels coming, he literally comes over there. and He's like, please come into my house as soon as possible. Don't spend the night in the square. Because he knew what these people were going to do. Well, you, well, you need to go one step further. It's obvious they particularly wanted to rape the angels because he offered other means for their pleasure – and they refused. They wanted the angels. This was premeditated, Aaron. But what I'm saying is that these angels, they didn't have to make this big plan. These people were already going to do it themselves with their own evil. That's why they think they came to Sodom and Gomorrah and into this valley because these people were so immoral. And uh, Jude... The epistle of Jude says – describes them as being like animals. All right. Let's go back to Jude, and let's do what I said. Now that you've produced for us with clarity your theory here, let's go back to Jude, read that. Let's go back to its accompanying text and then read that and see if the theory is credible. So please go back to Jude, and let's take a read of it. Uh, this is the passage in Jude, uh, chapter um, 1, verse 6 to 7. And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains into darkness until the judgment of the great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in the like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh and set forth an example of suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Let me interpret that. And the angels who did not guard their own authority, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains un under darkness until the great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. They gave themselves over to this fornication. Yeah, he, he literally gives you the first example and the second example. He literally comes right out and does it. He's literally telling you here, the first incursion was the flood, the second incursion ended at the valley of Sodom and Gomorrah. He gives you the first piece of the sentence and the last piece of the, uh, of the sentence. I, I mean, it, it lines up perfectly. Read the other New Testament passage concerning these events. Let's see if it does the same thing. Uh, this is 
Second uh, Peter chapter two verses four to six. God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down into Tartarus, and delivered them into chains of darkness, to be reserved into judgment. And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth, the eighth person, uh, preacher of righteousness, giving in the uh, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, and condemned them with overflow, making them an ensample an example unto those who would live after the ungodly. I hate to tell you, Aaron, these two passages are a dead ringer for your theory. And it makes you step back and wonder and think to yourself, why hasn't the theological academic community uh, informed all their parishioners? Why don't the sheep know this? Why isn't it why is it so easy to put two and two t- together in the Hebrew, certainly not in the King James and certainly not in the New American Standard and certainly not in any other English translation. It is quite simple, elementary to do this as you have done in the Hebrew. And the verses these names come up in is literally a slap in your face. I mean, once you look at it in the Hebrew, If you're a scholar of the Bible in English, oh my goodness, this is a slap to the face. I mean, this is an insult to your intelligence. If you've been studying this all your life in the English, chasing after these things, and then find out it's been right there in the Hebrew all along, oh my goodness, I would be upset. I would be more than upset. I would be distraught to find out. God had it there in his word the whole time. It, it's, it's rather shocking. It, it is rather shocking to think of that. Because everything you've described is... <laughs> I don't know how I could debate with you, son. Let me put it that way. Well, um, to bring this even further... This is as far as my theory goes. This son of Shekhar, this king of Babylon, mentioned in Isaiah chapter 14, um, he was the giant who instigated the Tower of Babel. And um, this was the king who Nimrod, the giants, the giant hunter, as mentioned in uh, uh Genesis chapter 11, it says he was a gibor, hunter. If you see that, we know gibor is the Hebrew word for giant. And the Septuagint comes right out and says gigantes. He he was a hunter of giants. And um, further, it says that his kingdom began in Shinar, or Sumer, and at Babel. So his conquest um, began uh, when he went out and um, fought against this king of Babel, who tried to ascend to heaven. And if you look into other historical texts, they call him Belus, or which is basically Bel or Baal in the Baal cycle. This um, Bel, this Belus, 
um, was uh, known in Babylonian and Assyrian um, history as um, basically the father of the Assyrians or um, of Ninus specifically, who is said to have been the founder of Nineveh. Um, and it's also baffling to see that um, Nimrod came and took over uh, Nineveh as well and had that built. So this bell, or uh, I keep referring it to him with several different names. Let's just go right back. Baal of the Baal cycle. This son of Shekhar. Um, he was the one defeated by um, Nimrod. And he was the original king of Babylon. That's um, I've actually studied this for a few years now. Um, very closely, I was having trouble figuring out a good uh, figuring out what his name was, but um, Baal just seems to be the perfect name. Um, but let's try to interpret that. So um, this giant instigated all these people to build this tower to reach into heaven. Would this be to let his angelic father reascend? Well, you know, Aaron, you just stepped on everybody's toes and you just made them as mad as a hornet. You just said that the Bible clearly states that Nimrod was a hunter of giants. He hunted them down. Now, all of a sudden, everything uh, that everybody else says uh, is a farce. Which it is, actually, uh, now that I think about it. Because what they say doesn't make any sense. Because God clearly says that he's a good guy. It says that he was a hunter of giants before the Lord. So he obviously had the Lord's blessing. So I just want to say that right now. But now... We have an expansion as to why in the New Testament, of course, that infamous name that is used there, of course, the prefix is Baal, what you're talking about, or Baal uh, in the Hebrew. Aaron, you're literally making all this make sense. You're making it make sense. It makes sense. So... The credibility factor for this theory not only should be put forward for peer review, it would take uh, much to be able to put together a rebuttal of what you just said from the Hebrew and the Greek. Of course, you could come up with all kinds of crap and garbage from the English, but from the original text God spoke… You have put forth a very credible and disturbing set of facts. Going at it in reverse, Aaron, what what you've done doesn't make sense. No one, no academic theologian ever starts with the New Testament passages. They always start in the Old Testament passages. You've done this completely in reverse and made a case that I would have difficulty countering. Further, like what I was saying about this bell um, 
founding Babel, um, a few of you may know of the his, the Christian historian Eusebius of Caesarea in his uh, Preparatio um, Evangelica. I'm sorry, I'm bad at pronouncing. Um, 918. Cite, um, cites uh, Artabanus uh, as stating in Jewish history that Artabanus found in anonymous works that giants who had been dwelling in Babylonia were destroyed by the gods for impiety. But one of them named Belus and escaped and settled in Babylon and lived in the tower which he built and named the Tower of Belus. You mean his palace, the Tower of Babel. Aaron, don't you realize that uh, – okay, I'm I, I'm sorry to keep remembering what you said before. You just stated that this Christian historian just reworded – he didn't want to give uh, Nimrod any popularity, but now you know how God destroyed the other ones except this Belus. It was Nimrod. N you, you're literally saying that Nimrod hunted these dogs down. Okay, this is beyond the pale. It's off the hook. You are but a boy, son. You are not a man yet. <laughs> and everything you're saying flies in the face of the theological academic community. Because, like I said, they go just the opposite of you. They say Nimrod's bad. They say that, uh, of course, there's many of them, uh, which prove their own IQs. They come forth and say that it's actually Nimrod that's going to rise again from the abyss and uh, play the role of an omen type of theatrical antichrist. But no, what I've just pointed out to you guys is that, well, let's remember, was Nimrod an Assyrian? No, he was a Cushite. He was the son of Cush. That means a son of Ham. Assyria is from Shem. Okay? Exactamundo. Completely different peoples. And what this bell, this bell, represents, this, um, what, what I'm going to theorize here is that Shahar took an Assyrian for his wife, well, no, offered himself to an Assyrian, and bore this Baal. And he is an example of the actual Antichrist who is to come, the Assyrian. So as you Wait can see a minute, here... Wait stop, stop, stop. No Antichrist is coming, okay? Yes, the Assyrian false prophet. Please speak biblically. Okay, the Bible doesn't say an Antichrist is coming, son. It says the spirit of Antichrist, what is coming, is an Assyrian false prophet. So, I'm just straightening out what you said there. That's all. Please continue. Yes, um, the Antichrist thing, you're going to have to go to one of our other shows to hear all about the false prophet and the Antichrist thing. But... Um, yeah, we can go there, but um, just go with 
the Assyrian false prophet. But what I'm saying is, is Nimrod is not this quote-unquote Antichrist. He's the opposite. He was not, he was never an Assyrian. He was a Kushite. Well, yes, I'm sorry to agree with you. You're absolutely correct. I mean, there's only one problem, and, and I've got to just, got to ask you, son. Historically speaking, the Assyrian woman that he would have had to have taken was Adagope, of which an entire chapter in Isaiah is dedicated to her. So, oh my goodness. <laughs> well, we're at the top of the hour, son. Please give us your closing thoughts. Well, um, this certainly was fun. Uh, yeah, like I said, I've actually been studying this for a few years now. I've I actually wrote a paper on this for school that I gave. Well, um, when I was homeschooled, I gave it to my mom to grade. <laughs> for my essay, my report, and, um, yeah, I've, I've, I've been studying this for a few years now, and only now have I been able to bring out my thoughts. I've, of course, found some new stuff along the way. Um, well, son, everything is only beautiful in its time. Nothing under God's throne is ever beautiful until it's time, until it's time. So give us an update on your Enoch translation. Where are you at with that? Well, I finished my translation a few days ago. Um, right now, I'm working on the introduction and the commentary. Um, I don't know how long that's going to go, but uh, I'm uh, I'm happy to announce, yes, the translation is finished. Um, so it's only a matter of time now before it's finished. And just so you all know, Aaron wrote a paper about this uh, very topic that we have passed along to L.A. Marzulli. Look for that to be a guest blog post uh, if L.A. decides not to publish that. Uh, that's just fine. We will um, go ahead and publish it, but we've given it to him, uh, and he can publish it underneath his copyright, and it'll be the into the matter. But if not, that's all right. I understand that L.A. has other stuff to do. Uh, but look for that at lamarzuli.wordpress.com. It will give you some of the details in print. So, ladies and gentlemen, Aaron, say your goodbyes. God bless y'all. Uh, once again, uh, very. Uh, it was awesome to... Uh, do a Bible study with you guys again. Uh, God bless y'all. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of yet another Christian conspiracy theory. Please do like, share, and subscribe. And look for us to be doing some other things on the Fringe Radio Network. And uh, I'm also doing things on my own uh, format. Uh, on Spreaker. It is according to the scripture. Look for that. You'll catch me there. And uh, please leave a comment and a like. Until next time, Christian Conspiracy Theory, 
signing off.